This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cam Ross, and today we have the returns of, he is advertising executive once upon a time, and he's uh, leading light in the Sarani community, and uh, he's, he's an all-round renaissance man. He is Vernon Adrian Amon. Hi, hey, Cam. Thanks for having me back. Pleasure. And she is uh, a producer at BFM, but she's so much more than just that title alone. She is Julian Yap. Hi, Cam. Hi, Vernon. So um, we have some background sound issues here at Julian's place. There's the call to prayer right now. And at my place, I got a cat out there who's shouting like crazy. So if you hear either of those two things, please forgive us. Um, so our three topics this week are topic number one is um, supporting England football and dopamine. Uh, that's one topic. And topic number two is Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. And finally, topic number three is critical race theory. So, with topic number one, as you two are no doubt aware, right now is the Euros, the European football championships happening. I, I know the two of you are big football fans, so you, you're glued to your TV on it. And, uh, and I've been supporting England since uh, 1990. And um, it's been a pretty miserable experience ever since then. I mean, I try not to support them, and then they just sort of pull me back in. But then there's the issue of dopamine, which I really discovered recently. So dopamine is not like doping or anything. Dopamine is um, it's, uh, it's a chemical that, that exists in the brain, and it is released by the brain, into the brain, um, when you do something that's good for yourself. So eating, drinking, having sex, uh, you get a, a release of dopamine, and it, essentially it, you feel good. And it's telling you, you did something good, well done. And it's really encouraging you to, to do things which are good for your survival as an individual and as a species. And, um, and, and I, I was watching um, a video uh, by uh, Professor Sapolsky, who was talking about an experiment done on monkeys. And it could also be done on football fans, by the way, which was that uh, monkeys were given a signal and then if they pressed the lever 10 times, they would receive food. Uh, but they would, after a gap, they would then receive the food. So it was expected that you would see a dopamine increase when the reward came, when the food came. Turns out it happened between the signal and the doing of the work. By the time the reward came, the dopamine had gone. So uh, they then changed the, the, the experiment. And instead of... Uh, you're getting the reward every time they made it only 50 percent of the time so the monkeys would be jabbing away at this lever 10 times nothing would happen so you would have thought they'd be very annoyed instead though the dopamine levels went up over 100 percent so what was happening actually was kind of as as professor sapolsky called it it was the the maybe had come in that maybe this time i'm gonna get lucky maybe this time i will win the um, the booker prize with this particular manuscript that i'm sending off to an agent who doesn't actually want to see it all these great and maybe this time england will actually win something and uh so i, I realized that i've been deluding myself all these years because when i do finally watch the match when the, the when the, the whistle goes at the beginning my excitement my dopamine levels were happening up until that moment when the whistle actually begins it's an it's a joyless experience and if i do score a goal all I'm experiencing is relief, not happiness. Um, but then again, I've never actually seen them actually win anything. <laughs> um, so, so yes, that's my experience of um, 
supporting England. And I'm, I'm wondering, you guys, uh, have you uh, have you found yourself in this situation before, where you where you you keep doing something even though some part of it makes you feel good, but ultimately there's no actual real reward. But there's a hope that there will be reward, right? So there's an anticipation of reward. So mm-hmm. there's this hedging instinct that comes up. I think that's really interesting. That whole idea of hope. Yeah, uh, uh, Julian. I mean, you know, uh, football fan that you are. Are you actually? You actually do know. Yeah, you are. So, uh, what about you? Are, are you? Are you a hope-filled person? You're young, so you still are. So I, I feel like, like you said, there's still a lot of hope around. I don't know what that is. Um, I. I don't know if there's anything that I could especially identify that would give me that hope. But when you're talking, I did think about BTS again. Um, I've talked before on the show about how much I love BTS. Um, and it has been, there have been studies done about K-pop in general, not just BTS, um, but about how much um, K-pop in general, the institution of K-pop, the point of it is to induce that happiness and in, induce that do- dopamine with the people that support them because they are such big fans and they're there to entertain you and bring that happiness into your life and especially with BTS I feel that a lot and if I feel that when I listen to their music and I, when, when I watch their shows and I feel like a little bit empty when I don't have that in them in my life. Really? Yeah. Wow. But then again uh, the funny thing with the k-pop thing is that the performers themselves may not be the happiest people. <laughs> Wow. Oh, definitely not. Definitely. Yeah. But they sell happiness. And uh, have you been sold uh, happiness, uh, uh, Vernon? You know, the thing is, I was, I was born an eternal optimist. So even in the most dire situations, like having to record at 1 p.m. on a Friday afternoon with, uh, you know, colleagues from BFM, you know, I still kind of like, you know, find the perky in it. So... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I said it myself. I don't know, maybe, is it, is it because I have, I'm, I'm oozing with dopamine. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we should go over to your place eventually when the day comes. And, and like with rub, like rubber tappers, we could like tap into your brain and, and just sort of um, extract dopamine from you directly. <laughs> the thing is, at the time of recording, England are going to be playing at 3 a.m. Um, coming up, 3 a.m. And like, am I going to get up and watch them? I probably am. And, <laughs> And I'll kind of hate myself afterwards and feel tired and, and useless for the rest of the day. But I, I don't actually know. I mean, like those monkeys jabbing that lever. I, I don't know how I would be if it actually came out good. And, and God, if Malaysia ever made it into the World Cup, I, I would just fall apart. I wouldn't be able to cope. But then again, <laughs> but then again you're different, different standards. You know, with England, I, I can have some expectations that they could actually they could actually win the whole competition whereas if malaysia got in that alone would already be the triumph and if they were playing say against brazil and they scored one goal and they still lost 8-1 i mean that still would be a triumph so uh, different standards i guess do you feel this with um the your, your your team that you support not england or malaysia but just your team because coincidentally over the weekend i was watching fever pitch which was a book a film adaptation of a book by Nick Hornby. And it's about um, this guy played by Colin Firth, who's a huge Arsenal fan. And the story is told over the period of the um, 1989 uh, Premier League, I think, or the 1989 
the game that they play. I don't know what it's called. I'm so sorry. I'm such yeah. a fan. Um, and it's about how Arsenal wins the cup after 18 years and how much of his emotions and how happy he is and his relationships and his entire life is completely shaped by how Arsenal did that week and his entire life is built around it. So I was, you know, I was wondering if you feel that with your regular team as well. I, I don't have one, actually. Um, it's part, I do the football show with uh, Ross Yusuf and it's, uh, it's a running joke that I don't actually have one. And, and, and yeah, that's quite interesting. Yeah, I that's quite interesting it. that you do a show involving football hmm. and you don't have a favorite team. Well, so therefore, when you comment, it's completely unbiased absolutely, I'm and cold, neutral. And uh, yeah. how does that come across? At, uh, I'm cold, calculating. I, I don't care about your emotions. I run roughshod over any, any listener who dares appeal to their club loyalties. But we're overrunning now, and uh, so we're going to have to leave me. And uh, and I'm going to, I'll keep you posted on this if if anything happens. I'll, oh, please do. Yeah, I, I remain ever hopeful. Yes, and and now uh, Julian, um, a similar thing. Uh, Disneyland. Do I love Disneyland or what? Disneyland, the best, most magical, most beautiful, happiest place on earth, for sure. I love it. I love it so much. I um, over the last few weeks, I've been thinking so, so much about how I wish I could be at Disneyland right now. The entire, we, all borders in the world could open. We could go to any other country. And I would, the first place I would go is Disneyland. I, would, I, I wouldn't be picky about which Disneyland. I would just, I just want to be in Disneyland all the time. Like right now, I've just been spending the last few weeks Googling rides and like looking at um, food that they do and things that they sell. They, they're updating rides, by the way. Like they're, they're working in Disneyland there. They've just opened a new land. It's, there, there are so many things that they're just waiting for the world to open so that people could go. So I, I'm one of them. But Julian, I, I, I mean, you've, you've sampled several Disneylands around the world. I'm not quite sure how many there are. Mm -hmm. And um, are they all the same? Are they different? Is, is the French one very French or, or something? Um, I, they, so I, I, I am very lucky to have been able to go to a few different Disneylands in the world. And they all follow the same blueprint. But um, they do follow, you know, they have the different languages, um, different Disneylands because of regional preferences of, like, for example, in um, Japan, they love Lilo and Stitch. So even though that film came out over 10 years ago now, the original film, they still have so much Lilo and Stitch um, merchandise and stuff there. Whereas a film like Coco um, that came out maybe five years ago, it didn't do, it didn't do so well in, in Tokyo. So, you know, they do cater to the region that they're in but um ultimately the blueprint's the same but the dedication and the detail that they put into all the rides and into the entire experience is exactly the same and that's why you could plot me in the middle of any of them and i love it but because obviously disney is, is is um it's got such a history and such a brand uh, inventory of of um oh, created so many so much so much of memory childhood memories i mean like wow yeah, it, it, and it's all in there. So if you go to um, Space Mountain, I think it's called, there, there are other places with rides and stuff which don't have the same story. You're not interested in just rides per se, are you? You, you want to be part of that story. Oh, yeah, completely. Like, um, yeah, like the rides are great. The rides are different and they're built different and they're designed differently from other from with this compared to the same the exact same right a roller coaster isn't the same in disneyland as it would be in universal studios for example and it's because of that 
story that they inject into it. Um, you know, little things, and it, it, it really does boil down to little things. You know, if you're lining up for a ride, you're going to be lining up through maybe um, the Space Mountain Space Force. You know, you're going to, everything is completely designed so that you can enjoy it as a whole. You, your entire day there isn't going to be, it's like if you go into Ikea, and you're not supposed to leave. It's like that, but for but better. I don't I don't know. I I love every little thing about it. I I get very protective over the fact that a lot of some things are changed or updated because I I feel like the original animatronics are so beautiful. I think I don't have that for anything else in 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 the world that I love so so much and I I want to learn everything about it and its entire history. I want to I want to be in there all the time. V- Vernon, have you been to Disneyland? Yes, I have. I've been to the one in Hong Kong uh, and I went two days in a row because I was so excited by it. Um, and yeah, I loved it very much. Loved the Mandarin version of Lion King, by the way. <laughs> I, I went to Disneyland once, the one in Los Angeles, and uh, and I have to agree, it is the happiest place on earth. I mean, it's, you know, it's manufactured, you know, you know you're, you're being massaged into it, but they do it so well that it actually happens. And the, uh, when I went there, we I was about 23 years old, and I went there with a couple of my friends. And uh, as we were approaching, we were getting so excited. And then when we got to the car park, and we ran to the gate, and it was only halfway there that we realized we'd left the car doors open. We just couldn't get there fast <laughs> enough. And, and we were like, really, you know, we were grown up and cool and everything. And we didn't really care about Disney, whatever. But, uh, but it, it grips you. I would have thought, you know, like a 20-year-old Cam would have been like, oh, I'm too cool. I'm going to David Bowie's concert, you know. I'm not going to go to, I'm going to, go to Disneyland. Exactly, exactly. But it, it, <laughs> it gets you. It gets you. Uh, one of the things that I, I respected about it was that it was um, a fully integrated experience. Uh, it's so thought Oh, totally, through. yeah. And it, and it really is Disneyland. I mean, mm-hmm. the whole, the whole uh, ecosystem is that there's... There's nowhere else. I'm wondering, you know, for, for you, um, Julian, when you go to other countries, do you do you feel a little disappointed that that I, I, went to, I went to Venice recently, and the thing that really struck me was like, oh my god, Venice! I love Venice. Venice is so Venice. It's like it's like Disney, <laughs> um, but there are a few places which are so clean and complete. So uh, the rest of the world must be disappointing for you. Well, I mean. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But I, but I think also um, that's the point of the experience. I think that's what makes it so special and so packaged and why I think being so far away makes it so rare and so, and so, and so, you know, such, such, a, such a great thing to be able to experience and then have to go away from because it is completely planned, but also um, in the past, um, a place um, in, in Florida, there's a, a, a a land in Disney World called Epcot. And that was planned by Walt Disney himself. And the point of Epcot, I can't remember what the acronym is, um, but Epcot was supposed to be a model for a city of the future. So, you know, it had walkalators and it had places that um, it, you know, it, um, they had main concourses where they had every single culture around the world. The point of Disney always from the start was to showcase how we could be the best that, that, our future could um, could give us, and it obviously hasn't panned out that way. And obviously, um, Disneyland or Disney in general are not going to be able to 
keep up with with technology and all of that. But ultimately, the intention is there, I think, um, to make sure that it is a utopia, but also that it's an achievable utopia. So I'm fine if the rest of the world is terrible. I can go back to Disneyland. It's cool. I, I want to draw a parallel quickly, though, with with my topic, which was uh, sport and dopamine, because the thing, the difference is that with sport, it's uh, it's uncertain. You you don't know about the the end result. Whereas with Disneyland, the 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 happiness is guaranteed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like it's like a very sugary drink. Um, <laughs> It's, I mean, you you said you said earlier you don't ever want to leave, but you do really want to leave. You don't really want to live in Disneyland. I think that's a lot of. I think a lot of people when they do think about Disneyland, um, overall, you don't think back to standing in line for an hour or think about why a a coke costs maybe like ten dollars. You know, no one cares about the little stuff. I, I some people must have. I'm sure they have terrible experiences, but. Ultimately, it's you remember all the good stuff, and um, I'd live there. I'd want to live in there. <laughs> I want. I'd want to live, and I'd want to work in there. There's, um, you know, stories about how working in Disneyland is the most amazing experience, in, because of the fact that all the rides and the experience is, to it, it's all driven and made by people who love the place so much and love Disney so much and the story so much, and they want to put make that for make that possible for other people. Um, there's a very great show on Disney Plus um, that talks about the entire Disney universe, which includes, you know, now ESPN, National Geographic, Pixar, all of that. But um, for Disneyland itself, there's a bit that does look at the different people that work in Disneyland. There's, um, for example, one of the stories was a, a guy who's been working at Disneyland maybe 15, 20, 20 years. Um, and he just he just drives the boat that goes up the river on the Tom Sawyer on the Tom Sawyer ride. And he just does that every single day, maybe 50 times a day, but he loves it so much because it's, you know, customer facing of, um, he gets to meet a lot of kids, but because the experience itself is magical. And I think um, a lot of people, they want, they, they get into Disneyland hoping to work in their way into, you know, experiencing that whole experience. I wish I could do that. Okay, well, if, if you wish upon a star, then um, your dreams will come true, <laughs> uh, I have been told. So, uh, but in a moment, though, we're going to go to uh, something completely different, which is critical race theory here on uh, Bitter Culture, BFM 89.9. And we're back with myself, uh, Cam Ruslan, Julian Yap, and now Vernon Adrian Amon <laughs> is going to tell us about critical race theory. Well, I'm not going to so much as tell you about it, but yeah, okay, I'm going to tell you about it. Critical race theory is the the thing going on in America at the moment, which is creating a lot of uh, controversy. Critical race theory was uh, developed in the 70s by a bunch of uh, lawyers who were looking at the way government was run, institutional uh, organizations, um, how it was actually um, set up, and perhaps sometimes um, intentionally and sometimes unintentionally, uh, that actually in a sense, contributed to institutional racism. Um, critical race theory is the thing that is at the moment um, a big controversy in America at the moment. It's about looking at how perhaps um, Black America has been treated by government, by education, by housing, by health care, by even incarceration and various things like that. And uh, they but, but, but also the controversy is because it's... Um... 
uh, it's about whether or not it's being taught in high schools, is it? Well, the uh, the general kind of like uh, heat is coming from the idea from the conservative camp that critical race theory has seeped into schools whereby young white kids are being loaded with the burden of uh, racism um, because critical race theory looks at how non-white Americans had been treated. So therefore the conservative camp feels like as though, um, you know, you, it, you, you shouldn't be doing this in, in elementary school. Um, you shouldn't be bringing, does uh, challenge certain, you know, perceptions and certain of uh, running society that has been going on, um, you know, ever since America was founded basically with slavery as its keystone. And what, what is it about it that's... So, uh, yeah, it's kind of all serious and everything, but... Yeah, well, what is it about it that uh, caught your attention, Vernon? Well, I think, uh, you know, how we view critical race theory from our part of the world would be interesting in that it will inform us as to how we might deal with uh, aspects of race and racial politics and uh, how racism might play out in different ways. Um, around us here in Malaysia. So that's why I thought it would be worthwhile to bring attention to this thing called critical race theory, which uh, exists in America and which is creating quite uh, a hoo-ha in, in, in the American news situation. And this is... Uh, so there you go. Yeah, I think it, it is very much an American thing. I, I, I happen to be reading, and I've been reading for a long time, a lot about the US Civil War. It's a thing that I, I'm obsessed by. In fact... Uh, uh, Julian, if there was a U.S. Civil War land, I think I'd probably go to that. Interesting. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, and obviously race and slavery, um, key key issues. And it's an issue that's never been resolved. It had a chance to be resolved at the end of the, the Civil War. And it, it had not been taken up. And so since then, 1865 and before, um, so many institutions have, have, have um, ingested the desire basically to keep the black man down then that's quite a long time in malaysia though it's um oh, you know, say independence 1957 and then malaya before that uh, our history has not been long enough to, has it to I'm, well, I'm, being, I think... I'm being naive aren't i institutional racism <laughs> in in our institutions yeah i think i think uh, what what it does uh, bring to mind is how systemic racialism can seep into ordinary life without us realizing. And this CRT or critical race theory situation, becoming aware of it will actually make us aware of how certain communities in our midst here in Malaysia has privilege and that privilege by race also differs as you move from one community to the next. So like there is Malay privilege, which is, you know, uh, kind of like a, uh, stated in the constitution, there is Chinese privilege because the Chinese community in Malaysia, um, you know, to a certain extent, uh, is plays a huge uh, part in in business and the corporate life of Malaysia. Um, and so, I think it's really important for us to to yeah come to terms with uh, race theory in a critical sense, which is what it's all about. It is what these scholars in the 1970s. Um, began to study when they looked at the laws and governance and housing and education and realized that they were in part contributing to racism. And this was known as systemic racism. So, yeah. 
um, just going back very quickly to education, um, I was talking about not specifically critical race theory, but um, uh, along the lines of what, what was happening um, over the last year in America with Black Lives Matter. I was talking about this with my sister who is a history, um, history student. And she was telling me, um, I, I, of course, I don't know where this, um, the people um, having these discussions in the academic world, I, I'm not sure about, about that, but she was telling me about how um, a lot of the time within education, you know, secondary university, so much of that isn't told in the, you, you're given what you're told because a yep. lot of our education is memorizing and regurgitation. We're not challenged to think about it in the context of anything other than what's on the page. And so much of that can be widened or broadened with that lens of racism or even through the lens of someone, of people with disabilities. Um, we don't have that basis, I guess. You know, um, we've been told this is what this is. We, ha we won't change that because we don't look at it in, in this in this lens. And I think, you know, you know, history has never been how we look at history and how we learn history and apply it has never been static. It has always changed. We are just in a place now where everyone's involved and we can get involved, like with Black Lives Matter, which was a world a worldwide movement. We can finally get involved and there's an opportunity to change that and introduce that lens. But people still don't want to do that. Oh yes, critical race theory in a sense is seen to actually disrupt society. And that's scary for the conservative camp. Um, yeah, I know it's, it's moving kind of like into, uh, into politics uh, here, but what I find really interesting is the basis of critical race theory because it actually came out of critical theory, which came out of you know Marxist uh, uh, thinkers and philosophers looking at so society and the exploitation or the use of capital or the leverage on capital um, has led to um, certain kind of uh, situations and therefore then um, those people labeled as Marxists and suddenly Marxism becomes um, a red flag and so critical race theory is seen as a Marxist theory which uh, doesn't belong in you know, a democratic or uh, a capitalist society, and it's causing a lot of problems. So therein lies that situation where critical race theory by its nature is seen as an ideology. And like all ideologies, there will be people who detract uh, with issues and thoughts about it. So I thought I'd bring it up and see where it goes from here on yeah, a bit yeah, of culture. But can I say, though, critical race theory is a, is a thing, it's an important thing, but it's also sort of being blown out of proportion because the, the right-wing media in the United States, Fox News in particular, is blowing it up, as they do yep. with many stories, in, in order to create fear. It, I mean, it's, it's an issue, but it's not a huge issue in, in the teaching world. But, uh, for instance, Fox News, in, in three months, until it finally took fire, caught fire, they mentioned critical race theory 1,300 times on Fox News. In three months. And, and like, was anybody talking about critical race theory? No. So they pick up on things like transgender people um, being allowed or not allowed to go to specific toilets. Yep. Uh, should this is a really big one out there. Should transgender people be allowed to take part in sports? <clears throat> it, because, because it's important that people feel the news and they feel um, embattled and uh, surrounded by forces against them. So I, I, um, I sometimes, you know, it, it is an important issue, but at the same time, almost 
speaking about it, actually legitimizing their fear-mongering. But nonetheless, the United States in particular does need to have a reckoning on its historical racism and the place of the black man in society. I was um, wondering, um, I I didn't, I mean, before um, I knew that there was a term for it, because, you know, when you do discuss topics in, in general, you know, you look at all angles of that topic, there, it feels like these are conversations that um, are already happening. They just, it's just that now there's a label to put on it. I know it's been around since the seventies, but you know, like Camp said, it's been blown up. Has, is this just, it's, isn't this, I'm, I'm not sure, but isn't this just something that, you know, if we're, dis- if we're discussing a topic, you automatically look at the systemic racism or the systemic um, issues in place that have affected or led to that problem. Isn't this something that we already talk about? Yeah. And so, and so therefore, when I bring it up into a show like this, am I kind of like feeding the monster, you know, or am I creating space so that it becomes less mysterious and less intimidating and less uh, influential than it really is a narrative which can enlighten people and therefore it becomes less mysterious well the what whole point think? of yeah the whole point of a bit of culture is to make life less mysterious um, <laughs> so, and, and feed monsters um, so that's what I, I mean i've certainly i've certainly uh, I, i'd not heard of it, of it till recently but but then when i heard about it it was like oh that makes sense and it was just a very useful tool um, to be able to look at history, look at events and institutions yeah. uh, f- from this different perspective uh, and to see how it is built. I mean, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah that, that's really helpful. I do want to add that as an awful hopeful young person, I do feel that a lot of the time I do like to, you know, it, it, it's incredibly idealistic and it's incredibly um, misguided a lot of the time, but I do feel like I want to think that loads of these institutions are, um, you know, institutions in place, they are working, there are people in place, I'm hopeful that there are people in place that are reversing the effect, or rather, not reversing, ma- making reparations, you know, even of systemic racism. I want that to be true. I want, um, you know, everyone on the street that I meet, I would like that if I spoke to them, they wouldn't be a racist, I don't know, or that they would be able to recognize their privilege. I think that is a place of privilege myself, being able to, you know, being surrounded by people who are like-minded. Um, and like here on the show, but personally, I don't know if this is, you know, oh, we have to debate whether it's been, whether it should be taught. I do feel like it is something that everyone should have. I feel like this is something that kids should be taught from, from a young age. It's not a theory. I don't, I don't know. No, I, yeah, I don't know sure. if this is. Yeah. We move on though to the final part of the show, recommendations where you recommend something that might be of interest. And, uh, oh, I go first. I'm reaching back for a book. Um, show and tell. Yeah, because, uh, because I knew that Vernon wanted talk about critical race theory so this really wonderful book that i read it's called the the fall of the house of dixie by bruce levine it's the the civil war the u.s civil war and the social revolution that transformed the south it's uh, it's about the civil war from the perspective of the south and the things that were happening in the south and um yeah they they were not prepared to let go of um slavery it was it was very much a race war and um very upfront about that but eventually when things started going really bad they even started talking about arming their slaves black slaves uh which kind of makes no sense whatsoever yeah. <laughs> uh, making regiments with them saying okay if you fight for us we'll give you your freedom um oh interesting <laughs> yeah when the option <laughs> the clear option was okay well 
um, you just give me that gun. And <laughs> so, um, yeah, but it, it's a really wonderful... What's the name of the book again? It's called The Fall of the House of Dixie. And uh, it's so good that I'm going to read it again sometime. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's my recommendation. Uh, Julian, yeah. what do you have? I would like to recommend a documentary series. Cam, you'd enjoy it. Um, a documentary series that is on Disney+. Plus. It's called The Imagineering Story. Mm-hmm. It's all about the Disney okay, Imagineers. Are you, are you gr- were you green with envy when you were watching that? Not really. To, um, uh, fair warning for anyone who does watch it. It is obviously a show funded completely by Disney, produced completely by Disney. It does. If you watch them, if you binge them, if you binge the episodes, it, you do feel like you're being sold the idea and the beauty of Disney while, you know, all the, the, the skeletons are in the closet. But ultimately, it is looking at all the people who built Disney to be what it is today. It shows, you know, one of my favorite Disney artists, who is Mary Blair, who designed um, um, the It's a Small World ride and a lot of things that we would recognize. Um, it's um, produced by um, uh, Leslie Iwerks, who is a who's a daughter of one of an, she's an Imagineer herself, but she is a daughter of an Imagineer. So it's a legacy thing. It's a great, it's a, a, um, not that many episodes. Um, it, they really go into lots of different rides and park design and how um, that, that entire history is great. It's a great series. I've, I, I don't know about you, Vernon. I've never seen a person as happy to talk about something as Julian is about Disney and Disney World. I Disney. saw it just then when you talked about I, Civil War. I'm, awes- <laughs> I'm awestruck by her enthusiasm. Yeah. No, it's wonderful. Hey, a great <laughs> that, that's the doc- documentary, The Imagineers, is it? The, Im- the Sorry, The Imagineering Story. Okay. I'm going to put you on the spot very quickly. What is your favorite Disney, Disney movie? Oh, The Little Mermaid, simple. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, okay. come on. But that didn't take long. All right. No. Uh, Vernon, I want you to be yeah. part of our world and give us yeah, your recommendation. What is... Okay, my recommendation is this. Walking thir- uh, 30 minutes a day. I want for people to walk 30 minutes a day, every day if they can, because in this lockdown period, I'm sure all of us are just sitting on our backsides watching Disney Plus and reading books about the Civil War and not going out a lot because we're not allowed to go out. Yeah, so so I'd, I'd like to recommend that we go out and do a brisk walk 30, 30 minutes every day because we're all getting fat in this, you know, in this pandemic, I'm sure. Vernon, because I've been absolutely... doing it and I've been feeling so fit and alive. And... Yeah, you're absolutely right, Vernon. Yeah, um, sorry? You're absolutely right. That is a very good recommendation. And, is that uh, something that you did before the pandemic, before the MCO and the pandemic? Not every day. I do it like once, maybe three times a week or twice a week uh, exercise. But I realized that, you know, because of the pandemic, I'm sitting at home or lying down on the couch or, you know, and, and it was very sent sedentary uh this this lifestyle this day-to-day thing hardly going out of the house and living in a pair of boxes for the next three days kind of thing you know so okay uh so i decided to to do this 30 minute walk a day and i must say i'm feeling a lot better and i think i'd like to recommend that to our listeners that's a good idea hey by the way vernon what's your favorite disney movie oh uh i can tell you that i love ratatouille is that a disney movie it is right yeah, it is, is disney it? pixar it counts okay yeah i love that i love i <laughs> i i am very fond of the french accent so yeah oh, just love it okay and yours can yeah. you know now that i've asked the question i don't know i i remember disney been going through a real fallow period for several years 
up to that point and i did i went off i think it was a free screening and i went like oh, i'm too cool for this and i watched it and it's like what this is really good great songs mm -hmm. uh great story great animation um so i, I guess I have which one was this again little mermaid it's Ooh. about a little mermaid okay. yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's in the title um that's the thing about disney it's all in the title isn't it there's no you know there's no critical race theory for sure yeah. <laughs> well, actually, yeah. you know, you go back and you look at some of those Disney movies and you think, really, you did that? Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> anyway. Um, OK, we must we, we must we must end this now. So um, only remains for me now to thank uh, uh, Julian. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. And I can only hope that you get to go to Disneyland soon. I hope that for all of us. Yeah. 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 And uh, Vernon, Adrian, Amon, thank you and enjoy. Most your welcome. Thank you for having me again. Yeah. <laughs> and myself, Cam Ruslan. And so please join us next week for another exciting episode of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.